what better way to go into our time in the Scriptures than to be reminded to put our trust in God. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so we know that the Word is the means by which we grow in faith. If we sing those words and we say, wow, that sounds a lot like me in my life, having to tell my soul over and over and over again, put your trust in God. And we ask ourselves, how? How do we grow in putting our trust in God? We recognize we don't trust Him perfectly. And the answer to that question is, As Paul says in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the parallel phrase to that, as you've heard me say before, is be filled with the Spirit. Then we will trust the Lord increasingly. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Genesis 40. Genesis chapter 40. We are... At the back end of this book, we have 10 chapters to go. It's uh, coming to a close, sort of. And we find ourselves at the end of this book in a larger section, which is the narrative of Joseph. And as I said last week, it's, it's greater than that. It's larger than that. It's not just Joseph, but it's Joseph and his brothers. But the spotlight for the majority of the narrative really is on Joseph and what the Lord is doing in Joseph's life. Last week, we looked at the fact that the story of Joseph is one of simultaneous descending and ascending. So Joseph is going down, and yet he is being brought up. We've seen him, just by way of review, we've seen him thrown into a pit, (coughs) thrown into a pit by his brothers to be left for dead, to be killed, and yet raised up out of the pit and sold into slavery. We've seen him thrown down into enslavement in Potiphar's house and yet raised up to the highest rank within that house. We've seen him thrown down into prison from enslavement in someone's house all the way down deep into the pit of prison Because of the false accusations of Potiphar's wife. And yet raised up to the highest place among the prisoners. That's what makes this story so incredible. Is the contrast. The depth of the descending and the height of the ascending in the midst of it all. Success in his work. Favor in the eyes of his superiors. Promotion. In every situation. This has been the experience of Joseph in Egypt. And as we read all of this, there is only one reason for it. There's one reason for this entire picture. And we saw it last week at the beginning of chapter 39 in verse 2. It gets repeated again at the end of the chapter. One reason for all that we see. Verse 2 The Lord was with Joseph. That's why. That's why he's ascending. And in fact, that's why he's even descending. As we know, at the end of the book, 
Joseph will say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So Joseph is not, God is not just the author of Joseph's ascending. He's also the author of Joseph's descending. All of this part of God's purpose. But on the human level, Joseph is being pushed down by the hands of sinful people. We can't avoid that. That's obvious. That's clear. He's being pushed down. He's been pushed down by the hands of his brothers who hatefully, sinfully, cruelly, jealously threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. Pushed down by these brothers. He's been pushed down by Potiphar's wife who had all of this intense raging lust for Joseph and she could not have him And so she decided to slander him, to frame him, and to have him sent off to prison. So Joseph is being pushed down by the hands of sinful people. But at at every turn, he is being raised up by the hand of God. And I think this teaches us something that we can never forget in life. Because we sometimes also are pushed down by the hands of sinful men. We sometimes are slandered, mistreated, and so forth. And we're reminded in the story of Joseph that sinful hands cannot overcome the Almighty's hand. No matter what men may do to us, God's hand is mightier. I love when Jesus in John 10 says that we are in the Father's hand and no one can pluck us out of his hand. Hand. It's the same image. We have the hand of God. Of course, that's an anthropomorphism. God does not have a hand. He does in Christ. The Son, the Word became flesh, and He has hands, and we will see them one day. But the Father does not have hands. God is spirit, Jesus says in John 4. But we see God upholding, as we find in the Magnificat at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, that God upholds us with his arm, with his hand. And that's what he's doing with Joseph. God is a champion for the good of his people. He will not be defeated when it comes to the good of his precious people, the ones for whom Christ died. So no matter the enemy, no matter how great No matter how influential or powerful or how well-resourced, the people of God are safe in the hands of God. And the story of Joseph teaches us that among so many other things. In fulfillment of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God chose to use Joseph in a special way. And that's what we're reading. It's important that we take the Joseph narrative in its context. What we've been reading for a long time is God's faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the covenant family, the family of promise. God has come to them. He has made promises, various promises to bless the whole world through their offspring. And God is working out those promises in the life of Joseph. Joseph would be God's instrument for preserving and relocating his covenant people. So Joseph has been sent off to Egypt 
in order that God's people in Canaan, the promised land where they are sojourning, would not starve to death as there later will be a famine. And I think we are meant to understand that Joseph is in Egypt, not just so that the people of God won't starve to death in Canaan, but also so they won't assimilate with the Canaanites. That's what the story of Judah, I think, tells us, is this is where they're headed. The leading brother of of Jacob's sons, Mary's a Canaanite, has two wicked sons who are executed by the Lord. That's where the family's going, towards starvation and assimilation. But God with Joseph. That's what we see in this story. The story of Joseph's rise to prominence in Egypt is a pivotal moment in the story of God's rescue mission. Maybe you have a children's Bible that goes through the storyline of Scripture. And I love those children's Bibles that dig deep into the individual stories of the Bible. Because it's so important that we teach our kids what happened with Jonah. And what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What happened with Daniel. What happened. Those stories are in and of themselves important. So we don't want to lose sight of those as we go to the meta-narrative. The big picture of Scripture. But it is equally important. And I would say even a step further in importance. That we understand what the whole of the Bible is about. It's one story. It's one story. And we could sum up the Bible with two words, rescue, mission. And there are so many children's Bibles that convey this so well. That God is on a rescue mission all throughout Scripture to save his people. And here's what he is doing. In this story and every other story of the Bible, God is sending his son. This is the rescue mission. God sends his son to take away our sin guilt and give us new hearts. That's what all the Bible's about. That God would would send his one and only son, Christ, and Christ would take sin upon himself. He would become a substitutionary sacrifice. He would take the sins of his people on himself and he would die. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus would pay those wages on the cross. God would raise him from the dead and Christ would impart the Holy Spirit to his people and he would circumcise their hearts. Circumcision is fulfilled in the circumcising of the hearts in the new covenant that the hearts of God's people would be circumcised by the Spirit and that they would fear God. As Jeremiah says in the New Covenant, they would, they would fear God. They would love God. And those of us in this room who are believers, we know what that means. Before we came to Christ, we had no appetite for Christ. You know, think about your favorite food, your appetite, your physical appetite. You think about it. Your mouth waters for it. You want it. You have an appetite for that. Before you came to Christ, you did not hunger and thirst for God. You had no appetite for him, but then God did something. He he miraculously, graciously did something in your heart. And you began to desire him, to have appetites for him. What we are reading today in the story of Joseph is a pivotal moment in the story of this rescue plan whereby God would take our sin off of us and give us new hearts. This is part of that story. 
So today we come to chapter 40 of Genesis, and the title for the sermon this morning is Preparations in Prison. Joseph's time in prison is a time of preparation. God is preparing the way for his exaltation to the highest rank in Egypt. And we'll get that soon, but it never ceases to amaze me, this story. That we have this this Hebrew sojourner who becomes a slave, who becomes a prisoner slave. I mean, it doesn't get worse. A slave who is also a prisoner, who then becomes as if he were the Pharaoh of Egypt himself. The Pharaoh entrusting everything into his hands. This is the ultimate rags to riches story in human history. The ultimate right here at the end of the book of Genesis. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 40 verses 1 to 23. This is God's inspired and infallible word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked, Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house. Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket... There were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you 
and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You can go ahead and be seated. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it and that he would apply it and cut us to the heart as Peter's hearers experienced on that day, Pentecost. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that we get to come together and read it and study it and sing it and pray it. It's a blessing, Father. Help us not take this time for granted, Lord. It could pass very quickly if our minds are distracted and very little could come of it. Lord, we pray that would not be the case. We pray that you would hold our attention to the word of Scripture. And Lord, that we would be transformed by it, that your spirit would, would work in very incisive, deep, foundational, hard-hitting ways. In each of us today, we ask, Father. We, much of our sin, Lord, is hidden to us. We can't see it, and yet we are still responsible for it, Lord, because it comes from our hearts. It comes from our flesh. It comes from our desire to love ourselves and please ourselves, and as Pete prayed, to glory in ourselves. And so, God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would show us our sin, and you would help us to to take hold of the healing balm of Christ crucified. Father, that the blood of Christ and the promises that are yes in Christ would be the healing balm for our souls today. Lord, we pray for any among us who are unbelievers or who, uh, Lord, just those who are unconverted. Lord, some maybe would say, I'm a believer, I believe, but Lord, their hearts have not been changed. They don't have these appetites we speak of. They don't hunger and thirst for you, God. We pray they would see that today, that you would take away that self-deception, that blindness, and that they would see your grace and your glory in the face of Christ, that they would turn from self-righteousness and sinful living, that they would take hold of Christ and follow him. Lord, we ask that you would be gracious to each of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we come to Genesis 40, we see God, as I said before, preparing the way for Joseph. And we see this in three movements of the story. As we, as we watch the, the narrative unfold, really there are three movements to this. First, we see it in the connection The connection that he makes while in prison. Verses 1 to 4. Second, we see God's preparations in the confidence. The confidence in God that Joseph expresses in his speech. And we see that from verses 5 to 19. And then thirdly, the confirmation. The confirmation of his accurate interpretations of the prisoner's dreams. Which we find in verses 20 to 23. So that's just a map 
of where we're headed today as we go through this passage of God's Word. So first, the connection. Let's reread verses 1 to 4. I want to put those very much in focus. Verses 1 to 4. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. So there Joseph is in prison, pushed down and yet raised up. We read last week in verse 22 of the previous chapter, chapter 39, verse 22, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. So Joseph becomes the lead prisoner. As we said before, he's, he's descended from slander, the slander of an important man's wife has gotten him thrown into the pit of prison. And yet God has raised him up very quickly within that prison to be the lead prisoner. And the prison warden keeps everything under Joseph's charge. Joseph just takes care. He's still a prisoner, but Joseph just takes care of what needs to be done. And one day Joseph happens to make some new acquaintances Two new prisoners are dropped off from Pharaoh's court, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, it's important for us to see that these would have been two of the most important men in Egypt. Does it sound very important to bring someone a cup or uh, maybe here just to bake some bread? But these two guys would have been the most, two of the most important people in Egypt. But for some unspecified reason, these men have offended and angered Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The chief cupbearer was responsible for pouring, for testing, and for giving the cup to Pharaoh, serving him his drink. And the chief baker was in charge of the king's bread. So I think maybe we could infer here that Perhaps the Pharaoh has become sick and he's wondering, why am I sick? And he's looking around and wondering if maybe one of these two guys has poisoned him, has tried to kill him, to get rid of him. And so perhaps that's why these two guys in particular are together thrown into the prison. Whatever the cause, both of these men find themselves there in the pit, in the pit with Joseph, from the court to the pit. And as Moses is telling this story, there is one overarching thing that he keeps drawing our attention to. And it's, it's important as we read the Bible to look out for these recurring phrases and related ideas because they help us to understand the intention of the author. The intention of the author is essential for uh, understanding the Bible rightly and having it come and impact our hearts as it is meant to impact them from the Holy Spirit. And so what is Moses trying to tell us here? What does he keep drawing our attention to? And the answer is this. These high-ranking officials are placed with Joseph. This is very important. 
This is precisely what Moses wants to put very firmly in our minds. Verse 3, they are in the prison where Joseph was confined. Verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. And then verse 4 again, he attended them. And then we find it again in verse 7, almost needless repetition. And anytime we find what we think is needless repetition, we should take note and really dig into that repetition. Verse 7, Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody. You want to tell Moses, we've got it. We've got it. These guys are with Joseph. What we have here is connection. God is connecting Joseph directly to Pharaoh's court through these two officials. They are with him, meaning that Joseph is connected to Pharaoh's court through them. Immediately, in the prison, in the pit. This is where it happens. And not just to Pharaoh's court, but right up to Pharaoh's face. Literally, right up to Pharaoh's mouth. Joseph is brought by these men, by their presence with him. Joseph is brought right up to the very face of the ruler of Egypt. This is the connection of connections, particularly in the case of the cupbearer. God is preparing Joseph to meet Pharaoh, and it's happening here. So let's pause for a moment in the story. What implications can we draw out of this as Christians today? What do we do with uh, this fact, this reality that here we have Joseph being connected to these men? And I think the first one is this. That meeting with Pharaoh requires this placement in the prison. Do you see that? That meeting out there, that great and wonderful meeting that will elevate Joseph right to the top and will make all of his problems go away. Not really, but it will, it will, it will totally remedy all the injustices that have gone before. That meeting out there requires, necessitates this placement in prison. That tells us something very important, very simple. We must trust God's wisdom. We think we know everything. We want to tell God how to run our lives. We want to tell God how it all works out because we're so wise. We are so wise. We know all the cause and effect relationships and we can discern what God is doing in our lives and we know where we're going to be in 10 years and how it's all going to get there. We've, we've written out a plan and we know what God needs to do to help us get there. And as long as he's doing that, we're checking those boxes and it's good to go. But then God goes and puts us in the pit or does something like this. No, God, that's, that's not the plan. That's not wise. That's idolatrous and blasphemous. Do you see the depth of our sin? That even in something simple like that, mundane and what we would regard as normal, There is blasphemy and idolatry replacing God's wisdom with our own. We do it all the time. We must trust this God. He sees all things. He knows all things. He sees us in glory with him. And he's working to that end. Second, I think another implication we can draw out of this is that humiliation comes before 
exaltation. Humiliation before exaltation. This is a a, a very important biblical idea. We see this in Joseph's life as it's described in Psalm 105. Psalm 105 verses 18 to 21. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Now we haven't read that in Genesis, but that's what would have happened to him. Until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. We're getting there. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him Lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. Just in the space of those few verses, we go from fetters to Lord. Do you see that? From fetters, from being hurt, to being Lord over the land. Humiliation before exaltation. Is this not the way of Christ? Is this not precisely what we find in the incarnate Son of God? Philippians 2, 8 to 9, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We have the humiliation of Christ before his exaltation. We could say this is the cross before the crown. The cross first and then the crown. That's what the temptation of Jesus is all about by Satan in the Gospels. Is Satan is working on Jesus, tempting Jesus to take hold of his crown, which is rightfully his, without the cross. And Jesus says, no devil. The cross he embraces With the joy set before him because he knows the crown is coming and he will inherit the peoples of the world. The cross before the crown. Do you see the Christian life that way? That's hard in America, isn't it? The cross before the crown. You're not a Christian in Saudi Arabia. You're not a Christian in North Korea. You're not a Christian in so many parts of the world. You're here. And this is God's providence. This is where God's put you. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. This is where we are. But isn't it the case that in this comfortable existence of ours, this suburban existence of ours, this affluent world bubble that we live in, that we fail to understand what cross before crown means in life? We love the crown. We love the cushioned seat. But we hate the cross. It feels heavy. It's hard. It's splintery. Makes us bleed. It hurts. It's fetters. And yet, all throughout the scriptures, we are told this is the way of Christ. This is the way of the Christian. The cross before the crown. This is the Christian Life, And we see it illustrated for us here in the life of Joseph. A third implication that I want you to see very simply is that God tests his servants. God has the prerogative to do that. And that is one of the ways that God chooses to work in the lives of his people. He tests them. 
We saw this with Abraham. Remember in Genesis 22, it says at the very beginning of that chapter where he's told to go and sacrifice Isaac, what is the whole thing? It's a test. God tested Abraham. Joseph must prove faithful in the dark pit before he is placed in the public spotlight. He must be faithful when no one is there watching He must cling to his God in obscurity. First, God tests his servants. God tests you. He tests me. He tests us all. That's how he works in the lives of his people. So we see the connection and the implications from that. Secondly, we come to the confidence. Look at verses 5 to 19, the confidence. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told him, told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh From you. Standing at the center of this narrative are two dreams. It's kind of what's at the core of this entire passage. Two dreams and two different interpretations. At some point during their stay in the prison with Joseph, the specific time, how many days have passed, is not told to us, not indicated here, but at some point during their stay with Joseph, they have. Dreams. And mysteriously, they have these dreams, each his own dream, on the same night. Different dreams, two guys on the same night. Mysterious. And if we want to quickly summarize what we find in verses 5 to 19, we have the officials' dreams. 
then confusion and frustration on the part of those guys because there is no one to interpret their dreams. They're they're downcast. They're troubled. They're just sitting slumped over in the prison, not knowing what to do. And then we have the dreams being told to Joseph, and Joseph interprets the dreams. That's kind of the basic summary or structure of what we find in these verses. One dream is positive. The cupbearer. He will be released in three days and reinstated as the chief of the cupbearers. The other dream is not so positive. The other dream is negative. The baker will also be released in three days, but he will be executed, either hung or beheaded and impaled. It's unclear which one, but neither is any good. One of these is going to happen to the baker, and then he will be left as food for the birds, period. That's it. There you go. Would not have wanted to be that guy. So those are the dreamers, and those are their dreams. But what is the purpose of this account? Once again, we have the dreams, and we have the dreamers, but what is, what is Moses as the author? What, what are we meant to take away from this? What, what is being highlighted in these Verses, And I think there are two things that should be our focus. First, it further solidifies the connection. Remember the point I made before that you have the witness, Joseph's with these guys. These guys are with Joseph. It connects Joseph to the very face of Pharaoh. Well, now that connection's going a little bit further. Now one of the prisoners will be released. He will return to the presence of Pharaoh. And he will be capable, at least, of helping Joseph out. This is great. What a connection. Maybe you've had something like that happen in your life where you happen, you just happen as you saw it to run into someone and all of a sudden it created this and this and this and you could just see how pivotal that moment was. Well, this is absolutely pivotal pivotal for Joseph and not just running into this guy but being able to interpret his dream and it be positive and he be released. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we need to see clearly here is that as Joseph is interacting with these dreamers and interpreting these dreams, we gain some important insight into this man's heart. So we're reading this this interpretation of dreams and we get a couple bits of dialogue. It's really important when we see what a person says oftentimes shows us what's in their hearts. Jesus made that comment in the Gospels that, that as, a, as, as a man is in his heart, so he speaks with his mouth. And so it would behoove us to look at what comes out of Joseph's mouth in this passage. And what we find here in his heart, the big word is just confidence. Confidence in the Lord. And we see this through his encouragement. And we see it through his plea. So let's look at those two. His encouragement and his plea. So first his encouragement to these prisoners. Joseph sees that they are troubled. He asks why. And they tell him they've had dreams and there's no one to interpret. And then we get Joseph's encouraging response in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to to God, please tell them to me. What is on Joseph's heart? God. What is on Joseph's mind? The Lord. Always before his face. 
This confusion of these guys, these prisoners, is met with Joseph's confidence. Joseph is confident that the Lord, the God of Abraham, has brought these dreams and that he can interpret them. His own previous dreams, remember those? Back with his brothers, he dreamed that his brothers would all come and bow down to him. His sheaf would be in the middle and his brothers' sheaves would bow down to him. We had also the astronomical illustration where uh, those various heavenly bodies would come and bow down to him. His own previous dreams, the mysterious timing of these dreams... And the fact that the Lord has been with him, all of this gives Joseph confidence that God will use him to interpret these dreams. He immediately notices that. And so he cites God and he says, bring those dreams on. Here we are seeing Joseph's faith. He has not soured under pressure. Now get that. By the time you get to this point, You really are wondering what is going on in Joseph's mind. What is his attitude about this whole thing? I mean, this has not been nice. He has not been treated nicely. He's been thrown down and thrown down and thrown down since 17. And now he's 28. We know that from the the next narrative. He's 28. That means for 11 years he's been thrown down either in slavery or in prison as a slave. What's in his heart? Has he soured towards God? The answer is no. He has not soured under pressure. Under enslavement, injustice, and incarceration, this man has not soured towards God. This is what we find in Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of of things not seen. Joseph hopes in God. He doesn't see how God's going to work all of this out, but he is, he is sure in his heart that God will work it out. He does not see where things are headed, but he trusts in God nonetheless. And I think this is a corrective for us. It's a nice, healthy corrective. When we encounter this in Scripture, it, it causes us to really inspect our own hearts and ask the question, am I trusting in God? Because a passage like this, an opportun- this is an opportunity for us to ask the question, am I grumbling and lacking in trust towards God? When pressure comes, when the strain comes, maybe even right now, God is calling you out of that. No, no, no. Don't sour towards me. Don't crumble under this pressure. Take heart in me. Sing Psalm 42 to your heart. Be renewed by my grace. I am with you. So it's a corrective, but it's also a pointer. It's a pointer to Christ as we see Joseph functions in many ways throughout this narrative as a type of Christ in in so many different ways. But here we see that Joseph foreshadows the one who never soured under pressure. Jesus never soured towards the Father. 
as he was being pressed down through his sufferings. Read Hebrews and read about the sufferings of Christ. How he suffered as we suffered. He was tempted as we are tempted. Read the accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' life. Nowhere to lay his head. Chased around from place to place. In Nazareth, they tried to throw him off of the cliff. Trying to stone him and kill him because they're jealous of him. Betrayed by one of his own, denied and abandoned by the rest. This was the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and he never soured towards the Father. He perfectly, read Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the time you get to the end of that Psalm, he is praising the Father. He's praising God. That he will be with the congregation of his brothers. Hebrews, we're called Jesus' brothers. He is our God and he is our brother insofar as he is human. And we are with him in the congregation from all the families of the earth, offspring of Abraham, praising our God with him because of the cross. He trusted even as he was bleeding out on the cross. It points us to Christ. We will sour But he never did. And he stands in your place, Christian. Secondly, we need to see the plea. So we see his heart from his encouragement. We also see his heart from his plea. After giving the positive interpretation to the cupbearer, Joseph makes an eager request. And here we see just the pure humanity of it. Joseph trusts in the Lord. But here we see that he wants out of this place. He wants to make his situation better. I remember reading recently in the Institutes by Calvin where he talks about how uh, what it looks like to understand God's sovereignty and his providence and yet to take advantage of the remedies, as he uses the word, the remedies that God gives us in life, to take hold of the opportunities and the things that God gives us to make life better for ourselves, all the while trusting in God's providence. Not a slothfulness, Not a lazy sort of let go and let God kind of attitude. But a real trust in God and a vigor about life. And so we see here that with Joseph. Vigorously pleading. Verses 14 to 15. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Once again, here we see Joseph's confidence in the Lord. He is attentive to God's providence. He recognizes that this situation is not in vain. He sees God's care and his unfolding purposes at work in the pit. You know, the only way that we're going to be able to see God's workings in the pit of life is by the Spirit. As we are walking in the spirit and not the flesh, Galatians 5. As we are being filled with the spirit, Ephesians 5. As we are walking with the Lord, constantly keeping his word, his promises, his mighty deeds before our eyes. Then when we go into the pit by the spirit, we will be enabled to endure and to take hold of those acts of providence that we see. So we see Joseph's confidence. We see his faith in the midst of this. And that's part of the preparations for Joseph 
as he moves into the next phase of the story. But finally this morning, we see the confirmation. Look at verses 20 to 23. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Here, we have the fulfillment of Joseph's interpretations. That's what's looming large here on, in these verses. Uh, what Joseph had, had uh, said would, would happen, happened. It was fulfilled. God has accurately interpreted these dreams through his servant, Joseph. Key words in these verses come in verse 22. As Joseph had interpreted to them. That's what we're reading here. As Joseph said what happened, so it Happened Just as Joseph interpreted, they are released three days later. This occurred due to a feast celebrating Pharaoh's birthday. And just as Joseph interpreted, the cupbearer is restored and the baker is executed. It happened as he had foretold. Undoubtedly, Joseph would have heard news of this outcome. The text does not tell us that, but I think we could infer that Joseph would have heard at some point that what he had interpreted had indeed happened. And this in turn would have given Joseph further encouragement that God was with him and that God was indeed setting up his release. Joseph was seeing God's hand working out. I can imagine as those two guys are taken out of the prison on day three, Joseph, this big smile on his face, He sees how God orchestrated this and off goes the cupbearer. He knows that he's going to be fine and he's waiting to be released. But there's a problem. Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. All these verses... All that we've read here, all this time spent together, the passage of time, I think in verse 4, as it says, they continued for some time in custody. In custody, I think that's meant to show that there's a, a, a building relationship here. I mean, they're spending quite a bit of time together. All that has gone before, all the accuracy in interpreting this dream, and the cupbearer acts as though he never even met Joseph. Shoop, he's gone right out of his mind. No longer in view. And it's here that I want you to notice something really interesting. It just came to my attention later this week. I want to draw your attention to two words in Joseph's plea. Two words. Verses 14 to 15. First we have the word kindness. He asks that the cupbearer would do him Kindness, please do me kindness. Well, this is a very interesting word because this is the Hebrew word hesed. And what this word is translated throughout the Bible as is loving kindness or steadfast love or sometimes kindness. So he's asking this cupbearer to show him this kindness. That's the first word I want to draw your attention to. The second word is remember. 
He says, remember me when it is well with you. So show me kindness and remember me. And what does the cupbearer do? Neither of those. He forgets. He fails to remember Joseph and he does not show Joseph kindness. Now here's what's interesting as we read this narrative. These two words have been used repeatedly throughout the book of Genesis of the Lord. Kindness, steadfast love. We just read it. Chapter 39, verse 21. Go there and look. We've seen it many times. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. That's the same Hebrew word. What he asks the cupbearer to do for him, he doesn't. But God does. Steadfast love. And then the word remember. Throughout the book of Genesis, we've been told that God remembered. Not to suggest that God forgets, but to suggest that God is faithful to his covenant. He remembers what he's promised always. And he's faithful to execute on those promises. And so we reread in Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah. Genesis 19.29, God remembered Abraham. Genesis 30.22, God remembered Rachel. So what's my point? Although the cupbearer has forgotten about Joseph, the Lord has not. Although the cupbearer is not showing Joseph steadfast love, loving kindness, kindness, the Lord is. And I think this reminds us of something we can never forget in this life. People will fail us. Your spouse, your children, your parents will fail you. Why would you think otherwise? Of course they will fail you. They will forget. And they will not show loving kindness and steadfast love. We can't look to our families for that. We can't look to people for that. We look only to God. Our hope is in God. God alone loves us as we ought to be loved. God alone never forgets his promises and always lives up to what he says. We may feel forgotten, but if we belong to God, be assured this morning, you are never forgotten. By this God. So what do we make. Of this forgetful cupbearer, All of this that we've read. Only for the official. To forget Joseph. It almost, it almost. When you get to the end. It's such a downer. And you get to the end. Verse 23. And you almost think. Okay I guess we got to go start over again. That one didn't work. Plan B God. Plan A did not work. Because really it's just all about the human will. So the cupbearer, he in his will, he, he did not. Maybe he just forgot his, the fallibility of his mind or, or he just decided he wasn't going to say anything to Pharaoh because he didn't want to bring up some prisoner. But it's not left to the human will, praise God. It will happen. It's a matter of timing. The cupbearer will remember Joseph, but not yet. And it's amazing to see in chapter 41, the very first verse, what does it say? After 
two whole years. Now that's testing. That's patience. After this event, as he watches the cupbearer leave the prison, he's thinking, man, it's going to be a matter of hours or days, and I'm going to be out of here because I've done this amazing thing. I don't know what's in Joseph's mind, how he's processing this. But, I mean, he has done an amazing thing. God has done it through him. And certainly this cupbearer, if not for the sake of kindness, at least for the sake of being the one who introduces this guy to Pharaoh, he'll be out soon. Two whole years. It's over 700 days left. Why the delay? This delay forces Joseph to wait on the Lord. God's delay in your life forces you to wait on the Lord. Let me finish this morning with two quotes. One from John Chrysostom. He is an early church father. One of the great theologians, one of the great preachers of expositors of scripture. The the reformers looked back to him as as kind of the the expositor of scripture par excellence in the early church, just as they looked back to Augustine as the great theologian of the early church. John Chrysostom was the great preacher. And he says this about this passage. The wise and creative Lord, who like a fine craftsman, knew how long the gold should be kept in the fire. It's beautiful. And when it ought to be taken out, allowed forgetfulness to affect the chief cupbearer for a period of two years so that the moment of Pharaoh's dream should arrive and that by force of circumstances the good man should become known to the whole of Pharaoh's kingdom. The gold in the fire. The great grand plan of God working itself out in the lives of his saints. Then I want to read to you from another John. John Calvin, reflecting on this passage, says, Joseph teaches us that nothing is more improper than to prescribe the time when God will help us. To tell God when he should help us. We do that a lot, don't we? For he deliberately, sometimes for a long time, keeps his people in anxious suspense so that they may know for certain how to trust in God. Maybe God's doing that in your life this morning. Keeping you in anxious suspense. And yet he tells you, do not be anxious. Cast your cares on the Lord. He cares for you. Let's pray.